Well, good morning to you all. We uh, obviously have a much more empty theater than we typically have. This season of the year, this is the time of our cultural calendar when we tend to experience a lot more ghost town Sundays. When about half the state of Texas invades Colorado for the summer, (laughs) many of our church families join that exodus seeking a land flowing with snowmelt streams and cool dry air. Kind of makes you wonder why you're still in Dallas, doesn't it? But if you're visiting with us or you have recently returned from a cooler, drier place, I'll remind you that a couple weeks ago we started a new series in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And so we're still in 1 Thessalonians. And in chapter 1, as Colin preached for us a couple weeks ago, the Apostle Paul, he commends the Thessalonians for receiving the gospel with faith. And in chapter 2, Paul reminds them of the character of the apostles' ministry among them. But in our passage this morning, the theme turns to relationships. The theme turns to the community, the, the fellowship that Paul and Silas and Timothy and the rest of the missionary team have had and they continue to have with the Thessalonians. Young Christians, young theologians who are with us this morning, I just have a couple questions for you. First of all, you should know this. The word oasis is a word that you're going to hear many times this morning. Oasis. And an oasis is a special place, sometimes found in the middle of a desert, where water can be found. And it allows trees and plants to grow. And allows travelers to stop and drink and refresh themselves. So here are the questions that I have for you. I have two of them. First of all, in what way is our world, the world that we live in, like a desert? And in what way is the church like an oasis? This is the good news of the gospel that Paul announces to the Thessalonians about the wonderful oasis that God has created in a very lonely, in a very desert-like world. It's an oasis where Jesus meets us to build our faith and to comfort us in our suffering and to give us an identity far greater than we could build for ourselves. We find this good news this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17 and going through chapter 3, verse 13. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. And for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, 
as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come as a people that you have gathered for yourself out of the desert of the world, a people that you have delighted in, not because there's anything in us to delight yourself in, but a people you chose, a people you've redeemed for yourself, a people you have washed and cleansed through the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so now you delight in us because you delight in him. And it's on that basis that we come to you, Father, and we ask that by your spirit, you open our eyes to help us understand your word, to help us embrace it, to help us love it all the more. For it is among your people that we find our oasis, the oasis you have created for us and for yourself, for your own glory. So we pray that you would do these things for us even now as we come to your word. In Jesus' name and by the Spirit, amen. You can be seated. Well, it's supposed to be an environment that's teeming with life. Large schools of fish that are swimming here and there, and clams and octopus and lobsters and sea anemones and sea turtles and even sharks all talking to each other and laughing together in one big giant underwater neighborhood. This is supposed to be the wonderful, exciting, and communal world of Finding Nemo, which is probably one of my favorite movies made by Disney Pixar, and I think probably one of their best. And just about everybody in this theater this morning this, uh, probably has seen this movie or watched it, heard about it. And if you haven't, you should probably think about getting out more. <laughs> but the movie starts out with the primary character who's not Nemo, actually, but Nemo's father, Marlin. He's a clownfish. And the movie starts out with Marlin and his clownfish wife purchasing a new home in a beautiful, exciting neighborhood with lots of marine life to hang out with. But immediately, Marlin's life is turned upside down. His wife and all of his unborn children are destroyed in one devastating attack by a predator. And all except one little egg. And this one little egg hatches to become his only son, Nemo. And now, out of the pain of Marlin's great loss, Marlin won't trust anything or anyone. He won't even trust Nemo. And what makes things even worse as we know, is that Marlin loses Nemo too very early on in the movie as Nemo is captured by a human diver and he's placed in a fish tank in Sydney, Australia. And now, 
Because Marlin lives in an ocean filled with predators you can't trust and now filled with scars from his past. The ocean, a place that's teeming with life, is a very lonely place for Marlin. Marlin can't distinguish friends from enemies. He emotionally and physically cuts himself off from everyone else, trusting only himself. And although he lives in the massive community of the ocean, Marlin becomes an extreme individualist, trusting only his own judgment, relying only on his own fears, wanting nothing to do with others. For Marlin... Even a place like the ocean feels like a desert. And the individualism of our culture feels the same. Here we are, we live in a metropolitan area of well over 6 million people in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex. We live in an ocean of humanity. But we live in a very individualistic society. As even just a quick glance at the news over the last few weeks reveals, we live in a culture that has been so individualistic for so long, it has become delusional with individualism. This idea that our individual rights and our individual preferences and our individual pursuits trump the goods, the good of the community, are greater and more important than the community in which we live. We are in a live and let live culture with a live and let live approach to life as though each person can define not only what's important to him or her, but now each person can even define for themselves what they are. And in this fantasy, it's all assumed that we can pursue our own goals and values that we can even pursue our own self-definitions, and none of these things will ever bump into each other. It's as if being an American means that you live in a giant cultural ocean where you can swim alone or you can choose to swim with fish just like you, but never bump into other schools of fish. And therefore, your personal choices will only have immediate effects for you and your group and no consequences for others. You can do what you want or you can be what you want in the corner of your ocean without worrying about consequences because, well, after all, it's the ocean and it's a really big place and no one will care. In fact, no one even has the right to care. No one has the right to care, and so you can be whatever you want as a result. And if another school of fish doesn't like what you're doing and you're part of it, well, they don't really have the right to say anything about it. And in fact, they can just go somewhere else. And when you take this kind of environment with its radical individualism, and you mix it with the pain and the suffering of having been preyed upon, which we all have experienced in some way, it only causes more distrust, more of an inclination to retreat out of fear 
And we can now see why living in an ocean of six million people can feel like a lonely desert, too. Which is why one of the great themes of the Bible, a theme that we come across again in our passage this morning, is how God has reached down into a broken and fractured world of distrust and isolation and self-definition, and he's created a refuge. He's created an oasis in the desert. What we get from the Apostle Paul in this part of 1 Thessalonians, it's a refreshing look at human beings living, not as self-serving, me-first, respect-my-rights-above-all-else individuals, but human beings living as they were created to live, in relationships of self-giving, in relationships of shared suffering, in relationships of shared faith and beliefs and mission, and relationships of shared corporate identity. And to our world, and sadly, even to much of the church, this community feels like an oasis. Already in just the first few words of chapter 2, verse 17, we see the very strong attachment that Paul and his missionary team have with the Thessalonian Christians. The, The Greek word for torn away, there in verse 17, means to be made orphans. The word could be used to describe children who have been made orphans by losing their parents, but it could actually also work the other way around in reverse, describing parents who had lost their children. They've been orphaned by losing their children, and that's how Paul is using the word here. It refers to deep anguish over having been separated prematurely from the Thessalonians because of the persecution that we would read about in Acts chapter 17, which gives us the account of Paul having founded the church at Thessalonica. Paul and his church planters were forced to leave because of the threats being made against the new Thessalonian converts. And now Paul is reaching out to these brothers and sisters in the faith and telling them that his heart has been filled with a deep longing. A deep longing for them and his desire to be reunited with them. And through his pen and through his parchment, you can hear Paul's aching heart as he describes his thoughts and emotions and how they've often been centered on the Thessalonians, even though he couldn't be with them physically. The tone of this passage goes kind of way beyond like a casual, miss you, it's been a while, looking forward to catching up. Instead, you see verse 18 and chapter 3, verse 1, it gives us a picture of a father who has had a child taken away from him without warning. And he's trying to desperately figure out a way to get where his child is now. It's a visceral, anguished feeling. And what's remarkable about this is that Paul and his team, they hadn't known the Thessalonians very long. The Acts 17 account seems to show that their stay in Thessalonica had been about a month before they had been run out of town by Jewish and government officials. And for individualists and an individualistic society, the question comes, I mean, how do you come to care so deeply for others so fast? 
I mean, that's barely enough time to find out if you like the same movies. If you have the same hobbies and interests. If you have the same parenting styles. I mean, how can you feel so deeply for others so quickly if you don't even know what your compatibility score with them would be? And for Paul, the answer is simple. The oasis that God has formed in this self-seeking world, it's not held together by compatible likes and dislikes. It's not held together by mutually shared hobbies, commonly held practices for running a home. What holds the oasis together is something much deeper. It's a shared faith. It's a shared belief. It's a shared love and a shared obsession with the gospel. For Paul and for Christians everywhere ever since, this is the basis for the most important relationships that we hold dear. It's the faith that we share in the message of God's one and only Son who took on our cursed humanity and who died as a sacrifice because of our sins and our hatred for God and rose again to demonstrate that His sacrifice was good and pleasing and acceptable to His Father, who rose again to bring death to death itself, and rose again to promise all who place their trust in Him that they will someday too rise from the dead and enjoy fellowship with Him and enjoy fellowship with His Father and believers from every place in every time, in every age, this message, which can't be tampered with, which must be guarded tenaciously and faithfully passed down, is what unites people from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation and political sphere and social club and even every time period. This is the bedrock. This is the foundation of the oasis. In fact, this was so important to Paul that it was his desire to protect this message, to teach more about this message, to confirm that it was truly believed by the Thessalonians. It was this that drove Paul to want to reunite with them so much. And you look again at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. And you skip to verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Earlier in verse 18 of chapter 2, Paul had already said that Satan had hindered them from coming and visiting the Thessalonians. Why? Well, because Satan knows something that too many Christians don't. That authentic Christian relationships and corporate worship and community, these things are tied to doctrinal purity. And Satan knows that, as the New Testament teaches in so many places if he can successfully hinder authentic Christian relationships 
or successfully hinder doctrinal purity. He often gets the other one as a package deal. For Paul, Christian fellowship and community and corporate worship and corporate teaching and preaching and small groups and home groups and Bible study and prayer groups, all of these things are not just neat little electives for our Christian lives. Really great extracurricular activities for Christians to be a part of when it fits well into their schedules. Instead, these things are at the center of Christian growth and practice and vitality, and they're their means of assurance against false teaching. Paul knows that Christians who seek to live the Christian life in isolation from the church and want very little to do with the church, always reading and studying the Bible alone, always praying alone, always seeking to stand against the temptations and the teachings of the world alone. He knows that these Christians put themselves at great risk. These Christians are like sheep who wander away from the flock by themselves because they think that staying with the flock might be nice at times when it's convenient. It can be useful in a pinch. But it isn't really necessary to being a sheep and living like a sheep and following a shepherd. All the while, these same meandering sheep, they're oftentimes very confused about why, at the same time, it gets harder and harder to see the face of the shepherd and to hear his voice. And they're also very confused about why, at the same time, those that they used to know for sure were wolves. These have started to look less and less wolfish. And how they came to possess voice, voices that sound more and more shepherd-like. Because the truth is, Christian, God loves you as an individual. He has chosen you, He's called you, He's cleansed you and washed you, He's adopted you and He's made you His own son or daughter as an individual. But God isn't an individualist because a Trinitarian God can't be. And He didn't make you to be one either because you're in His image. Like the Thessalonians, whether whether we've been Christians for a lifetime or a month, we need the oasis of God, His church, His community of faith Because it's through them and their teachings of the word and their prayers and their encouragement that we hold fast to our faith, that we're nurtured in it, that we grow in our understanding and love for the faith. While it is through Jesus' work in the gospel that God has created this oasis in the desert, one of the many blessings of being a part of it This will sound weird and backwards, but one of the blessings is the joy of suffering together. The joy of suffering together, not alone. The church is an oasis in our suffering. Suffering is actually, it's the framework of this entire passage. It's the reason why Paul and his team had to leave Thessalonica in the first place. It's the reason why Paul is worried about these new Christians that they might 
walk away from Christianity because of persecution. It's the reason why Paul and his team wants to come back to them and why Paul and his team send Timothy to them to encourage them, as verses 1 and 5 say. And while suffering is not presented as something that we should desire or ask for, it's clearly something we should expect and not seek to avoid at all costs. We certainly should not seek to avoid it at the cost of our Christian witness to the world. And that's a very anti-individualistic concept. No one's going out to shoot off fireworks over that idea. Because Jesus told his disciples, including Paul, that they were destined for suffering. To use Paul's language from verse 3. And Paul told all of his disciples the same thing as we read in verse 4. Suffering, it's one of God's chosen instruments to proclaim to the world that my sons and my daughters love me. And they don't just love me because I keep them healthy and wealthy and politically free all the time. My children love me when their bodies are riddled with cancer. And they love me when they lose their spouses and children to death. When they're marginalized by their country's political process. And even when they're hunted down and when they're tortured and they're killed. Not because I'm some cosmic genie who promises to grant them their every wish. But because I've loved them so perfectly. I've loved them so well because my love is so irresistible. Because the joy of being loved by me can outlast and overwhelm all of the hell brought upon them by sin and death and the devil put together. Because that's the kind of God I am. And suffering proclaims to the world that truth. And suffering, it's one of the instruments that God uses to bind us to one another and to Christ. Paul saw suffering not as just something to endure, but as he says in places like Romans 8 and Philippians 3 and other places, it's, it's a way to grow an intimate fellowship with Christ and Christ's people. I think Paul saw himself entering into a deeper intimacy with the Lord Jesus himself when he shared in Jesus' sufferings. It was a way to know Jesus on another level, in another way. And Paul rejoiced in that. To suffer as Christians is to experience Jesus entering into our hardship with us. As Jeff prayed a minute ago, it's to watch him use that suffering, to watch him take the pain and the loss and the difficulty and steal its intended use by the world and Satan and to give it a new meaning, to give it a new use, to make us like himself. That's what he does with it. And he especially, more than anything, likes to do this by using his children to minister to his children. And so we're called to enter into each other's sufferings because by doing so, we're conduits, we're we're channels for Christ to enter into our suffering. This week has been hard 
for our family, for Ellen and I. It's been a sad week. We were given an adoption referral last week that we learned that we needed to reject and turn down for a lot of reasons. So it's been hard. But you know, it's been good. And it's been joyful at many times this week because of how God has shown His faithfulness almost exclusively through other Christians. As I was studying this passage this week in preparation, I received a, a wonderful call. Wonderful, Actually, it was an email. It was a wonderful email from a sweet sister in our church. And she emailed to tell me some wonderful news on how God had finally given great blessing in a situation that's been so challenging and difficult for her for a long time. She suffered so well through that time. And God's blessing wasn't in any way a reward for that. God's blessing was a reward for Christ's sufferings on her behalf. But it was this knowledge that helped her to suffer so well for so long. And her email was such an encouragement to me. I felt like Paul in verse 7. For this reason, sister, I could say, in our distress and affliction we have been comforted about you, and I would add even about us, through your faith. John Chrysostom, he was a 4th century church father, and he's one of the great, great preachers of his day. Lived 1,200 years ago, 1,100 years ago. And he said, Nothing makes friends and rivets them so firmly as affliction. Nothing so fastens and joins the souls of believers as affliction. Because see, God meets our most significant needs in His oasis as He meets us through each other. I don't just need to read about the gospel or think about the gospel alone in my study. I need to hear you say you believe it. I need to hear you talk about it. I need to hear you cry about it. I need to hear you sing about it. And I need to watch you believe it and follow it, and suffer while hanging on to it. And you need the same. Finally, this passage, it helps us find and hold on to an immovable identity. And what a splash of refreshing water that is for our culture. What a wonderful, wonderful truth this is for our culture. It gives us an immovable identity. Throughout these verses, we see Paul identifying himself and his mission so closely with the Thessalonians. In verse 19 of chapter 2, Paul identifies the source of his hope and his joy to be the work of Christ through him and the lives of the Thessalonians. Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 3 that he now feels alive. He now feels alive, not dead, but alive because of the news of the Thessalonians staying faithful in their Christian confession. You get such a clear picture here of how Paul thought, not just of the Thessalonians, but of himself. I mean, the man didn't eat or sleep very well at night. 
Because he's worried about the fate of a group of people he'd known only for about a month, as verse 10 seems to indicate. But when hearing of Jesus' work in them, he could sing and he could rejoice and he could pray prayers of thanksgiving, even in the midst of his own personal grief and suffering. Because of his identity having been fused with that of this new church in Macedonia. It's a radically different view of the church than we often have. Because when you live in a desert, an oasis isn't a neat little place to visit when it's convenient. It's your only source of life. It's where water and food are. Which is partly why I think our Lord gives us such basic daily items to picture His grace for us. Water for baptism. Bread and wine drink for His body and blood. It doesn't get any more basic than these things for our living. And, his, and in His oasis, Jesus tells us that His grace is even more basic to our survival and growth and identity and purpose in life than anything else. And so our place in the church can't be put on a level with other activities in our lives. It's on its own level. Church isn't just a great spiritual extracurricular activity for our children's moral development, like soccer or science club or singing in the choir might be for their academic or athletic development. Soccer might be something they do. Debate team might be something they do. But the church isn't just something they do. It's something that they are and we are. And that's a big difference. The oasis, the church, it's a living, it's a breathing organism and a wasteland with nothing but spiritual death all around. Because it is here primarily that Jesus has chosen to show up and meet with us. The church collectively is his body. The church collectively is his bride. We are the new temple of the Holy Spirit. We are not a temple-less religion. We're not a people without a temple. Our temple just isn't a building anymore. It's people. And our temple isn't inhabited by lifeless stone idols. It's inhabited by a living God. And that should completely change the way we see our need for the church. Because we're indwelt by the Spirit Himself. There's a sense in which the church isn't outside of you. It is you. It is you. And others that have been bound to you through Christ. And we can't really say that about anything else. Those of you with us this morning who made me skeptical of Christianity, skeptical of what it is that Christians preach and teach, what it is that we believe. Jesus holds out grace for you in this passage. This religiously secular culture that worships individualism that we're all in, it offers you nothing but loneliness. Living for one's pleasure for one's own right to define yourself no matter what anyone else thinks, it leaves us feeling alone and nameless 
and unclaimed and without purpose. And we just weren't created to live that way. You're told all the time that living for yourself and trusting for yourself above all else, that's what true freedom is all about. You're told it multiple times every day. But the message of Christianity, it's different than that. This passage we've looked at this morning, it defines true freedom, not by living for yourself, but by living how you were designed to live. That's how you'll know true freedom. By living the way you were designed to live in real and authentic relationships with other people. Not relationships based on shared interests and shared hobbies and shared intellectual pursuits. Not relationships based solely on sharing the same station in life or the same age. Not relationships of license and empowerment where people won't ever get in your way as you walk down a path to destruction. That's not love and that's not freedom either. True freedom isn't the power to create yourself in whatever image you want. And true freedom isn't about finding the perfect group of compatible friends who are just like you either. True freedom is found in knowing that you're so deeply and completely loved and claimed and given a name and a purpose for living by somebody who promises to never leave you nor forsake you. That is true freedom. And there's only one who can really say that to you. His name is Jesus, and he gave up his rights and his freedom to die for a people who hated him. And he rose again from the dead to create an oasis, a people for himself, that would live their lives in sacrificial, self-giving love for others and for their enemies. And when you believe this, and when you rest in this, all hell can break loose in your life and the joy of being his, and the joy of being united to his people, the church, will make it worth it. It swallows up the suffering. It swallows up the loss and the difficulty. Because you're loved. You're loved by him. And you're loved by his people. And so come out of the desert. Come out of the desert and drink of the grace that he offers you through his cross and through his empty tomb. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.